Welcome to Lit, a podcast dedicated to life, liturgy, and the pursuit of holiness. I'm Bryn. And I'm Justin, and we're coming to you from beautiful Austin, Texas. Where each week we're talking about liturgy in everything from daily living to following Christ. Welcome back to Lit. We have a special podcast today. We've um, spent the last two episodes talking about confession, um, first about general confession and then about reconciliation of a penitent. Um, and so those all kind of brought up this question of um, what should we be confessing? And so the question about what is sin um, really became sort of fresh in our minds. Uh, and we thought that it would be worth tackling that. Now, um, Justin and I alone were um, incapable of tackling this by ourselves. And so we have invited um, some really good friends to be with us and to help us talk about sin. Um, and so we have Jordan Haney Ware, who is a priest in Edmonton, Canada. And we have David Wantland with us. Um, and David is a priest in Houston, Texas. Um, so welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you and glad for you to bring your um, your perspectives on sin um, and especially from the different contexts that, that you are in and, um, and talking to people about this. So I certainly have a lot of, I certainly have a lot of experience with sin. <laughs> Don't we all? Let's just talk okay. about that icebreaker. And it is good. Uh, it's good to have both of you here. And it's good to meet both Thanks. of you uh, and to be back with you, David, again. It's great. So let's dive into why we have so much experience about sin. Um, and I'm thinking that might be an interesting place to start before we get like into Las Vegas and um, we'll come back to <laughs> Sin City later, maybe. Um, to go kind of back to the beginning, because where a lot of people land a lot of times is um, an original sin. What is that? What are we talking about? What's going on in the garden? And for our listeners, you probably remember in last week's episode, Bertie Pearson, who joined us to talk about confession, gave a very interesting um, idea about the garden and, and what that might mean in terms of reconciliation. But today, let's talk about the concept of original sin. So David and Jordan, where can you take us to help us understand original sin a little bit more fully? Go for it, David. You're up. Uh, the Bible is a great place to start on. <laughs> well, so I'll get there by way of um, the the catechism um, in the Book of Common Prayer. So it's got all those great questions in the back. We're talking in the back of the book. I'm looking at page 848. Um, the question, what is sin? Um, sin is the seeking of our own will instead of the will of God, thus distorting our relationship with God, with other people, and with all creation. And so <clears throat> that understanding of sin comes from a lot of different places, but um, in its beginning and its essence, the moment where um, Adam and Eve decide um, to do differently than what God commanded them to do with respect to the trees growing in the garden. And when they did that, um, a something happened in that relationship that made it impossible for them to, to be with God in the way that they had been uh, prior to the picking of the fruit and eating it. Um, and also 
because of the risk of their uh, claiming immortality by eating of another tree, um, God had to actually send them out. So when we talk about original sin, we're talking about the um, ancestral or generational consequence of what Adam and Eve did in the garden and how it affects us as uh, people who are generations and generations after them. I think it's worth noting that <clears throat> original sin has two pretty big camps of interpretation um, that map onto what would be presumed East and West. Um, so in the West, original sin is that we actually somehow through some transmission bear the guilt of that first act of Adam and Eve. In the Eastern tradition, as I understand it, and Jordan, I'll look to you to correct me if this is wrong or Brent or Justin, um, it's not, it, we bear the consequence of that original sin, but not the guilt. And the consequence principle among other consequences of original sin is death. Um, and so what we map onto original sin, I think depends on where we stand in the church. So where, where I am, where the, the four of us are in the Western tradition, we are inheritors of this idea that somehow, some way, just by being after Adam and Eve in time, we are afflicted by <clears throat> the continued desire to seek our own wills over God's will. I think the the main point that I would want to make about original sin is, is what it is not. Because David was talking about sort of this transmission, through this transmission of heredity, essentially, we are responsible for or in some way bear the effects of this act that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. And I think sometimes in the West, we've gotten so focused on this transmission hereditary element that it has become associated with the sex that creates children. And so somehow that has become this idea of original sin. And that's just right out. There's, there's no church, there's nobody in the early church, there's nothing in the scriptures that's saying that sex is the problem. It is rather, I, I love this word, the ancestral sin more than original sin. And this idea that we can be participators in a sin that um, goes before us and that we are, for which we, our guilt is partial, and we maybe did not originate it, but we remain participants in it. Um, I think, I, I think, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I appreciate that thought. I wanted to tack on to both of you as, uh, in terms of the early church. And David, I, that distinction between the East and West, perfect. I really love that. That's actually a clearer way than I would have said it. But then I'm from South Georgia, and I don't always say things clearly. So that's good. That was great. But what I want to tack on to that is when you look at the debate in the early church around this very topic, I mean, it is far-reaching. But there's a great humility with many of the writers, not all the writers, great humility amongst all the writers that they don't know if they have it all figured out. And yet the church and people following some of these early church folks grab certain things, i.e. St. Augustine, who said, I don't think I have all this figured out. We kind of disregarded that and then 
and ran with it. And then we just institutionalized it. But what's great, I think, what the, the concept that I love in the early church, especially in the contemplative tradition, you see this in St. Mark the Ascetic, St. Maximus the Confessor, um, John Palamas, is the idea that what happens in the garden is Adam and Eve do move away from what God intended for them to do by eating of the tree, which actually opened their minds to contemplating things they weren't ready to contemplate. And there are consequences to that that then affect all of humankind down the line. Uh, but no guilt attached to that. And, and you mm -hmm. know, since a lot of the church guys talk about the fact that God said, you're going to now bear children and it's going to be painful and you're going to populate the earth and that's what's going to happen. And they move to other uh, biblical characters in the Genesis story as examples of that reality that God stayed with humanity, um, not to punish them further, but to be in relationship with them as they have to live into the consequences of the contemplation of things that they weren't actually ready to contemplate that were really those things being things that were left for the heavenly host. And, uh, and we can think about in that Genesis story, when God looks at the, presumably the heavenly host and says, well, they've done what now they have this part of knowledge that we have. And if they eat of this other tree, then they're going to have it all. And, but it's going to be corrupted and they're ushered out. And that's part of what Bertie talked about last week. And they're ushered out of the garden, but God never actually leaves them. Um, and I think that's the, I think that's really important when we talk about sin is there's not this eternal separation because of original sin from God. There's, there's a relationship piece that's adjusted that affects down the line, uh, all of us to us today by way of Adam and Eve. And I, and I think I appreciate y'all both flushing that out a little bit, um, because that's a good starting point for just a general conversation about sin is what, what does all this mean for us? And Jordan, you're about to say something. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish out I, that. So I think often in popular conception, particularly outside the church, the idea of Adam and Eve's disobedience is almost a celebration of freedom. And maybe this is particularly North American, right? Where we're like all about more freedoms. But it's like, why would God, in fact, want automatons who are merely obedient? And why, what, you know, we, we almost celebrate some of that disobedience. And I, I read recently um, in the book, Resurrecting Justice, Reading Romans for the Life of the World, I read the phrase, before this moment, Adam and Eve knew only goodness. And after they ate of the fruit, they knew both good and evil. And thinking about it in that way, not as sort of in an obedience and a disobedience, but in really the terms of good and evil. Don't we want to know only goodness in our lives? To know no evil either that we commit ourselves or that is committed upon us? Like, wouldn't that be better to know only goodness? And so I think, yes, it's important to think about sin as going away from God's will and acting contrary to God's will. But I think it's also important to think about it as evil. And um, I, again, I'm like very Pauline in my thinking and to think of sin as this power, this external power that enslaves us in corruption. And we are unable now to know only goodness because we do all know both good and evil. I'm yeah. so glad that you that you brought that up because um, 
I think, I think you are right that we have this, that there's this idea now um, that almost like sin is like a superstitious thing, you know, like, oh, I better not do that because then bad things will happen to me. Or like even worse, like it's a karma, you know, that um, sort of you, you get what you deserve in a way. And, you know, um, we have a lot of messages that kind of reinforce that around us. Um, and, and also I'm so glad that you talked about freedom and this idea that we should be able to be free to do anything we want. But what we actually understand is that sin takes away our freedom. Um, and David, I was glad that you, that you pointed out that we have, you know, this resource at the back of our prayer book in in the catechism or the outline of the faith um, and the question that comes right after the one, what is sin, is how does sin have power over us? And the answer is sin has power over us because we lose our liberty when our relationship with God is distorted. Um, and I think that's, you know, just the the point that you are, um, that can be made with what you were saying too, Jordan, that um, that we, we think that by by being able to choose anything we want that we have that we have freedom but what christians actually believe is freedom is um the only thing we're really free to do is to choose goodness and everything else is enslavement to sin um and that's very pauline too you know that he says it's either you know we either choose god or everything else um and so in that way, there that sort of distills the thinking about it. Um, but I wonder if, um, you know, what you all have to say about that, but especially as we think about moving forward, you know, we think about ancestral sin or original sin as something that's like behind us or something that like we inherited and we have no control over. But what about our relationship with sin now? Um, how does sin have control over us now, or what should we what should we do about sin in our lives? I really love Nadia Boltz Weber's image of sin as a beast, and when she talks like that, I always picture sin really as a serpent going back to the garden again. But it's a serpent that's like wrapped around you, like a, a boa constrictor, and um, I think the temptation is to want to like punch sin in the nose or stab it with a knife. But when we look at the example of Jesus on the cross, the real example that he showed is not this sort of muscular combat, but rather sort of slipping through the grip of sin by refusing to engage it and refusing to be complicit in it. Because when we try and respond in that violent way, we're actually giving in to sin and we sink deeper into it. Again, now I'm mixing metaphors because I'm going to talk about quicksand. But, you know, like both in terms of this, like the snake wraps tighter around you the more that you fight against it. Whereas if you just say, I'm not playing this game anymore then you are in fact, and you're allowing this, the evil in the world to not corrupt you, but it, it still affects you. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Am I just encouraging too much suffering? 
No, I, that actually, so that, that connects for me to what I was saying earlier about the Eastern tradition really associating the consequence of sin with death. Um, in that for me, I think, so our relationship to sin now, so much of it is a conscious and unconscious relationship to death. Our fear of death, um, the like scarcity mentalities that come with it, our fear that we will be, you know, um, if we don't get to have full autonomy around our lives, around ourselves, around those we love, that bad things will happen. And so we act out of these places um, of self-protection, of protection of others, um, of scarcity that then grow into things like avarice and pride um, and sloth. I mean, that but all of that has a connection to something that we can name and identify, much like the snake around us, um, that, which, that is death. And if we can um, pass through the waters of baptism and discover that that thing that is running our lives, death and our fear of it, has actually been conquered, um, and then take on these practices that for me are the spiritual spiritual disciplines of slipping through the grasp of the snake, um, then we are dealing with it. But it doesn't have to have this kind of um, mystical, uh, what was the word that you used, Bryn? Superstitious quality that it's just kind of infected me to the point of not even being able to determine right and wrong. I think that is such a misstep. Um, that if we can recognize that sin can be named and identified and actually the more we name it, the smaller it gets to be in terms of power and control over us. Um, and that there actually is a path toward holiness. Um, if, if that's kind of the other end of, um, of a spectrum with sin, um, that is much more pedestrian than the other idea, which is this is like this huge thing, which evil is, um, but it's experienced so locally, so personally. Um, and I think that's where we actually have to meet it. For sure. I think there's so much shame associated with sin. You know how um, like in, in a lot of communities made up primarily of white people to be called a racist is worse than actually being a racist. And I think in many Christian communities, we have not embraced our identity as a sinner. And so if we went up into the pulpit and said, y'all are all sinners, everyone would be like, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and so, uh, what David is saying is that the more we embrace our identity as sinners, the less power it has over us. Because we say, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm not wallowing in shame around this. I am taking the steps I need to take to amend my life and to reduce the power that sin has over my life and to give my life more and more over to Jesus. Yeah, there's a parallel there for me with the way people are using um, things like the Enneagram. Um, I don't, I hope this will make sense as a tool for self-understanding um, that Instead of like being caught up in the swirl of who am I and why do I behave this way, um, people are given 
things like, well, maybe this is, you know, maybe um, as a one, maybe your desire for perfection is connected to this. And that's what drives you. Um, that it starts to like, the more we can talk about these things, the more it puts shape on the boogeyman that we're running from. Um, and to be able to do that is so much more empowering. Um, and it doesn't leave us trapped in that shame cycle that Jordan is talking about. Um, so the more, yeah, the more we talk about sin, I think the better it is for us. I think that, you know, it's always, it's always better, it seems, to do things together than to do things separate from one another. Now, I will say, I think I need to preface this by saying some of the work around understanding sin is a very individual process. In other words, and it's important, right? Because the trap, the other trap, the other trap of, uh, to use the snake metaphor, I do like this. I'm really trying to wrap my mind around this. Wrap wrap snake okay anyways what i what i'm what i'm thinking about though is one of the traps we fall into to, that i see today and this is going to kind of touch on the freedom piece too i think um is that there's two camps that i'm running into in my in the last five years of ordained ministry with folks sitting in my pews one is we have zero freedom even when it comes to sin and that it was all essentially ordained by god and even all my bad behavior, God made me do it uh, by the grand design, which is a really twisted understanding of what they think is predestination. We'll leave that there. The second one that I want to talk about is the blame game. Um, in other words, looking at everybody, saying that rating sins and going, well, I only sin in you know, the top, these like bottom four, but those people so much worse than me and they focus all of their energy on that whatever that is and that that's a that's a moving target for a lot of folks as to what those sins may be and they just attack and in the process what's what's the, the kind of the irony this is part of what y'all talked about part of what you hear in the early church is the irony of doing that is you're actually living into the sin you're living into death you're living in you're just tight. That snake is just tightening down on you even tighter because you're disregarding the fact that all of it, that we're all sinners. It's just, it's just that, that acknowledge. I love that in the desert. The desert fathers just come out and say, we just need to accept that we're all sinners. Let's just start there. Basic acceptance that we're all sinners. And that's the starting place. But when we don't internally do the work of addressing our sins and then open up the conversation as y'all just, uh, I think, did a fantastic job of talking about it's from that place of being a sinner that we talk to other sinners. It's not a place of judgment. It's not a place of rating people. It's a place of, I see you're struggling with, um, what Bertie kept saying I had last week, he kept saying I was having an affair or something. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Justin and his adultery. His adultery, that's right. Um, <laughs> I see you're struggling with adultery. So am I. Let's talk about that. You know, And there's these wonderful stories in the early church, especially in the desert again, about folks doing that very thing. And I think, that's where I think we find we, we start to even fully live into freedom and its true, liberty in its true sense, but we do it together. First, it's acknowledgement that I am a sinner, but death is not the end. David, you made a good point of saying that. Baptism reminds me of that. And we talked about that a few episodes ago. So our mm -hmm. listeners can go back to the baptism podcast and, and reconnect with that. Uh, and then we come into this community and we go, you know what? We're all sinners. Let's start figuring out how we move each other by having an honest conversation, which I love that image of the boogeyman deconstructing the boogeyman 
And we do that together by being honest about who we are and where we are and our struggles. Uh, it just changes to me if we can start to think that way. If church starts to look that way, I mean, gosh, conversations, relationships all start to look very different. And I think actually more powerful and much more uh, deeply connected people, people of God are going to feel more deeply connected to one another. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So I really appreciate right. that. I I, I love what you were saying about the ranking. I, I, You guys know that old joke, right, about the two guys who are running from a bear, and the one guy says to the other guy, we're, we can never outrun him, and the other guy says, I don't have to outrun him, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's how we treat sin, that and there's a finite number of people who Jesus is going to let into the kingdom of heaven. And so... My job is not actually to strive for perfection. My job is just to outrun all these other people behind me. And uh, is rooted in the fear that David was talking about earlier, fear of death and fear of shame. And the way that we use that fear as an excuse to do all kinds of stuff. This is about to be the most millennial podcast ever because David brought up the Enneagram and I'm fixing to talk about Harry Potter. But I love when uh, Lupin and Sirius Black encounter Peter Pettigrew and he's like, what was I supposed to do? Voldemort would have killed me if I did not give up the location of Harry's parents. And they said, well, you should have died. And... So many of us are Peter Pettigrew in that situation. Well, what, what was I supposed to do? Of course I needed to amass and hoard all of this wealth because there are no, there is no health insurance protection in this country. There is no uh, retirement protection in this country. So of course I have to hoard my wealth. What was I supposed to do? Be impoverished in my old age? Um, of course, I had to exploit my workers. Of course, I had to do all of these other things. And it's rooted in that fear of, of death. And if we as Christians say, well, death has been defeated. Mm -hmm. Death has been conquered. So I don't have to fear it anymore. I wonder what freedoms that opens up for us. Yeah. I think, too, um, one of the freedoms goes to what you were saying, Justin, about um, doing this in community. It actually gives us the capacity to distinguish what is sin from what is not sin. Um, and I would say that brings with it things like, you know, okay, you actually don't need to confess not being nice because maybe niceness is not actually um, a virtue. Kindness is, but niceness might be, you know, bourgeois sentimentality, let's say. That actually is about propriety and not about virtue. Um, doesn't mean you're supposed to be an ass, but you are supposed to be kind. It also means naming acedia, that like my indifference to the suffering of other people actually is a sin, even though I'm preoccupied on whether or not I, you know, used a bad word three seconds ago um, or, <laughs> or, you know, all the all the things that we, we talk about most, right? So, that's another gift of being able to talk about it together is that we actually liberate ourselves from, get to liberate ourselves in community from the delusions we have about what sin is and what sin isn't, mm -hmm. which is increasingly important. The more we deny sin, the more we choose to look away from it. 
I think one of the things that I want to make sure that we just at least touch on before we end um, is something that that David you said um, earlier on that there are that there are spiritual practices that help us live lives of repentance and that there's a destination that we have in mind. And Jordan, you also talked about the, you know, this idea of wanting to know only goodness. And so there's a, there's a positive side of living repentance. There's a positive side of wanting to name sin. And it's not so that we can feel bad. Um, it's not so that we can be better than other people, but there is, there is real, um, there's real spiritual work that we can do and there is goodness to be had. And so I, I hope that maybe um, as we as we wind up um, this conversation that we can just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah I hope go ahead, Jordan. Um, the, the thing that's that's tough for me with sort of the antinomian idea that, well, it just doesn't matter, is that it forgets that sin hurts other people. And so sin impedes my relationships with other people. Um, I am not able to be in a good relationship that is flourishing, that is manifesting the kingdom of heaven if I am in sin against this person, if my sin is harming this other person. Um, or maybe we can be in, in relationship, but then we can't be in relationship with these folks over here. The guy who is digging cans out of my recycling, right? We can't be in relationship with him because I'm in sin and the community is in sin against that person. And so the destination is the kingdom of heaven. Um, I, I, I'm reading uh, Warren Carter's great book, Matthew in the Margins, right now, and he talks about, he deliberately doesn't use the word kingdom of heaven when he is translating Matthew's gospel. He says the empire of the heavens as an explicit alternative to the empire of Rome. And so when we are in sin, if we are in the empire of sin, then we are prohibited for being in those relationships that are going to lead to the flourishing that comes in the empire of the heavens. And so repentance is not like self-flagellation. It is that literal translation of the Greek turning around and orienting ourselves towards the empire of the heavens and trying to get to that relationship of human flourishing where I'm not harming other people and other people aren't harming me. And that way we're all in this reconciled relationship and this reconciled community. And so it's good news to turn around from evil and to know only goodness in the empire of the heavens. I would say. Yeah, I love that. Um, where my mind went with that question, Bryn, was how important it is for us to remember that this is ultimately about our relationship individually as Christians and collectively as the body of Christ with God and with our neighbor and not about our relationship to a set of rules. Um, the, the law, you know, like the, the law for Israel 
is about a relationship with God. Um, and our pursuit of holiness is about our relationship with God and with our neighbors. And so for me, um, when I think about like spiritual practices and the goal, it helps me to analogize um, from my own marriage. And so to say, you know, my goal is a deeper trust, deeper intimacy, um, more courage, more power to take risks, um, to love others um, with my husband. And there are times that I mess up and I do things unknowingly known on purpose by accident. Um, and sometimes I feel contrition about them and sometimes I don't care. But my love for my husband moves me to confess, to apologize, to figure out what is the next step, whether I'm feeling a lot of, oops, I shouldn't have done that or indifference. Um, and we have to figure those things out together, right? Okay, I'm noticing a pattern in our relationship where I'm not loving you. Um, and so what do we need to do to figure that out? Um, and the goal is to move incrementally toward that. And I think any, whether you're married or not, we all have relationships where we have um, a deep understanding of our desire to stay in that relationship, to, for it to grow, for it to be continually life-giving. Um, and that's really what we're doing on a more transcendent level, but in brass tacks, much the same with God, right? That sometimes we do things that um, we really feel badly about and other times we do things we don't feel badly about, but our compunction, our yearning for deeper connection with God, for deeper intimacy with God and with our neighbors as an extension of that uh, moves us to practices of confession and repentance. Um, and those practices we're talking about are the things that we determine individually and collectively as a community um, that are those negotiations. Like, what do we need to do so that the pattern changes? Um, and, uh, and there are tons of examples of it, um, and they need to be tailored to who we are, who our lived what our lived experience is, um, where we find ourselves in the world. Um, that's just way and more I helpful than thinking about holiness as this kind of, it, ha it can have a, a parallel superstition to it, to this, the superstition sin has around it. Mm -hmm. And what I love about your marriage analogy that you're making is that the amendment of life piece is really important. If I do yeah. something inconsiderate that I know is gonna tick my spouse off and then I, I say, I'm so sorry, but then I keep doing it. You know, you mentioned, like, I don't know that God cares and I don't know that our spouse cares whether we feel contrition or indifference. But what matters is what we do in response. And the challenge with indifference is that we're not motivated to do anything. And so we'll just say, I'm sorry, over and over and over and over and over again. And we have no intention of ever changing our behavior, actually. and. So I think that's why the amendment of life, the turning around and orienting ourselves towards the empire of the heavens is so critical because if we are going to be in relationship with this person for an extended period, the way that marriage is supposed to be, then we do actually have to change what we are doing that is harming that relationship. You know, I, I think um, by way of maybe wrapping us up here and then couple final thoughts after I say this. I'm always reminded, and I've been reminded the last three episodes 
uh, that we've done, including this one of the great divorce by C.S. Lewis and, and the image of those who are in quote unquote hell, just really a, a place of self absorption. I mean, they're just overly obsessed with themselves and it's everybody else's fault. And, and then, and then when they get out the opportunity to get on the bus to go to heaven, even they have to make some choices, the amendment of life has to happen, the acknowledgement, and it's a painful, inadvertently is a painful process to actually get to that full place of, uh, of, of union with the empire of heaven. Um, and I think there's some power in that because if we think about St. Gregory, the theologian, he talks about this very thing, Jordan, that you mentioned of or, that we're constantly in a place of making decisions about living towards God or living away from God, living towards God or living away from God. And he describes it. And Richard Ward grabs this too. Um, that when we turn away from God, there's this beaming, overwhelming love of light and life that's like right behind us. We can't see it doesn't go past us. And we're just staring in this darkness and we're scared. And then we act out of that place of fear until we acknowledge, oh, wait, I don't need. And then we start to turn. And then all of a sudden we start to see a little bit of light and we turn more. And we're constantly in that. St. Gregory talks about that constantly in that struggle. And by way of saying this, he, he quotes, I think it's Matthew 23 the woes or when Jesus goes after the Pharisees. And sometimes people say, well, see, the Pharisees are just so bad. The reality for me is when I read Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees, he actually doesn't give up on them. He's trying to get them to see David, to your point, it's all about relationship. You need to see what your actions and your inactions have on groups of people. Um, he says, woe to you when you go so far to convert one who's only going to be another child of hell. Um, not literal hell, it's it's that eternal separation. It's that not doing what God's intending us to do, not building those relationships. Because again, they're holding up a system that is not exactly what God desired in terms of the law. And then Jesus embodies a new way of understanding and gives two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor, which on the surface, or we can read them so easily, but in practice require us to acknowledge who we are, where we are, what we are, and then start doing something constructive about it. Um, so I so much appreciated, we're not done yet, but I've so much appreciated having y'all share uh, so much wisdom with us uh, on this episode. Are there any final thoughts before I get to do the, the rapid fire questions that I so look forward to do every time we have guests? Any final Go thoughts? Go for it. All right. So real quick before the, before the rapid fire questions, Jordan, why don't you talk a little bit about your podcast? So our listeners, uh, and we'll, we'll connect it in our show notes. Tell us a little bit about your podcast real quick. So I am a co-host on the Two Feminists Annotate series. Uh, we annotated the Bible from 2016 to 2019, story by story, going mostly in order. Occasionally, we went chronologically rather than in canonical order. But for the most part, we, we went pretty much in canonical order through the Bible um, with my dear friend, Lucy Hode, who is a lay woman and a, an administrator at an Episcopal school. And uh, then since 2019, we have been annotating the Beatified, so we could keep the acronym. And we're going through the under-recognized, under-talked about women of Christian history. And that's been our whole goal is to lift up some of these forgotten characters in scripture and in Christian history, Christian life, post-scripture, who maybe have some things to teach Christians today that we don't often talk about because we just forget them in talking only about 
St. Gregory the Theologian and St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and all of these other folks, whereas, you know, St. Clair of Assisi, St. Hildegard of Bingen, all of these folks have incredible things to teach us. And so it's not that we shouldn't look at what these other guys have to say. Our project is just, everybody's already looking at them. Who are we not looking at? And who can we learn more from? So uh, go check us out. We are everywhere that you get your podcasts. Thank you. All right, rapid fire questions. What do you love about the uh, Anglican tradition and or Episcopal church, depending on how relevant it is to your context? These are not meant to be thought about. Fast answers, please. Thank you. Hymnity, hymnity, hymnity. I can't believe I'm saying it, but it's hymnity. Uh, I love that yours was also one that we can't have during the pandemic because for me, it's the centrality of the Eucharist. And so I'm, I'm just in a real bummer that we can't have it during the, the pandemic as much. What's your guilty pleasure song? <clears throat> Christian song or guilty pleasure? I left it very open-ended on purpose. Before He Cheats by Carrie Underwood. Um, Y'all, it's Milkshake by Khalees. It's the song I think of all the time. Okay, and I'll bring it back to something semi-serious for the last question. Uh, <laughs> what are you reading right now? I am reading Langmeet Casserly's The Bent World. It's a um, late 19th century Christian socialist take on Marxism and how it can be redeemed or not by Christianity. I generally have four to seven books on, a go, on the go at one time um, and am currently reading too many things to mention here. So I will talk instead about the sci-fi fantasy series that I'm reading. Um, the first book was The City of Brass and uh, right now I'm reading The Kingdom of Copper and it is an alt universe based on some Muslim and uh, Central Asian Middle Eastern mythology, pre, like pre-Muslim uh, mythology, um, some characters there. Uh, a lot of elementals, water, earth, fire, and air elementals from that part of the world. Um, and the, the characters are really interesting and fun, and I'm having a blast reading that. So I'm not going to talk about any of the theology I'm reading. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for being with us today. We so enjoyed having you and for your honesty and your wisdom, as I said a minute ago. We really appreciate that. So thank you. All right. For, for having us. You are welcome. Uh, next week, we will pick back up. So join us as we uh, continue on this kind of Linton theme. And Brent, what are we going to talk about next week? I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I don't remember. Well, and the reality is we don't remember because we haven't decided yet. So no, folks, I, it's going to be a surprise. Decide. I just oh. don't remember what it was. <laughs> Bryn decided, but I didn't. So we're going to find out. So tune in <laughs> next time. Lit is a production of the Reverend Bryn Bond and Justin Yon, Episcopal Priest in Austin, Texas. Music is provided by Alitu. We encourage you and invite you to send your questions to us via the emails you'll find in the show notes below. We will ask uh, answer them on air at a future date. And we so appreciate your listenership.